0: I think what's an interesting exercise that i did a few times over the years was to just put down on paper what my thesis or reasons for investing in something or not investing in something was and i think when you see those get validated and invalidated when they get validated you get a little bit more confidence right that does not happen overnight it takes years and then there are so many external factors that affect this it's capital it's how well you can work together as a team, it's competition, it's market forces, so I wouldn't ascribe all the credit to the investor or the person who had some of those assumptions because there are so many other factors to it.
1: Hi, I'm Amanda Kua and this is One More Scoop. Here. We're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Hi, Rashab. So happy to have you today and nice to finally meet you.
0: Thanks, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this one.
1: Well, I know that you know how all of these podcasts start, and that is, what was your childhood like? So I want to hear a little bit about what your childhood self was into, what was life like, and could you give us a little picture into it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I was born in Calcutta, and uh, I grew up in, I did my schooling, all my schooling in Delhi. I come from a, a services family, so my parents, my grandparents were all in the in the services either in the army or in the police and you know at that during that era that was sort of a very you know aspirational sort of life to be in the services and to be a coveted officer in the police or in the army. so we had a very peculiar type of upbringing that upbringing was very very value driven, very very focused on you know education and certain core values, around integrity high moral fiber respect for elders and and you know the importance of hard work and education in your life and i think that from a very young age my parents sort of instilled that in us and and it led to us being pretty good in school and uh, and and also having some extracurriculars i was a, a fanatic i still am by the way uh, i was a fanatic golfer my dad put me on the driving range when i was 5 years old And, you know, when you're a five-year-old, you don't really want to stand in one place and try to swing this metal object. (laughs) You kind of want to run around and chase things and jump off trees. And I was just wondering, what am I doing here? Until I started maybe two, three years later, getting good at it. And he started putting me in the club tournaments. And I I played, I ended up playing, you know, amateur golf in India and very seriously considered a, a professional career. And I think that you know, if you take my first point around the upbringing and the values and the importance of education and all of those things, that played a big influence in taking that decision of going down that professional path or not. And I actually chose the academic route, right? So I, when I was going to college, and, and, and at that time, that same value system and importance of education led my parents to kind of drive me and my brother to say, go to the United States and do your undergrad there. That's the best education in the world. And work really hard at your examinations in school as well as your applications and get there. I was very fortunate to have an option to go to multiple schools. One of them was on a golf scholarship, which was very, mm-hmm. very exciting. But I think at the time, the golf and the sports industry overall in India, other than cricket, was, you know, there was not, a, it didn't look like there was a real bright future in terms of becoming a professional athlete other than being a cricketer. And so there were many factors at play, and so I chose the academic route. Sometimes I think back and wonder, what if if I if I had gone the sports route and and discovered whether I had it in me to be a professional or not? But uh, you know, the hindsight is always twenty twenty, as you know. And uh, yes. I ended up going to the University of Texas and doing my undergrad there, and getting onto my professional journey thereafter.
1: Apart from golf, were there other things you were into as a child?
0: anything that you are very very interested in the the i was very very interested in automobiles i uh, from the time i was a little kid and collected my own little car collection to the time i started learning about cars i was very very fascinated by them and we'll talk about you know the career journey later but i when i was 33 i i became co-founder of an online automobile marketplace and you yeah. know my passion for auto and you know stayed with me through my life and obviously had a big factor in me taking that plunge and diving into the deep end of the pool but those two were I think the two things that that really got me going as a child I did I was a fairly you know a well-rounded person in the sense that I did all right in school I played multiple sports I was on my school swimming team and hockey team as well but golf was like one one big uh, passion and and the other one was was auto
1: So you're very athletic. So you talked about the value system that your family sort of instilled in you. Would you say they were strict about it, or do you think that they just showed it or taught it to you by example?
0: Oh no, they they were extremely strict. My mom especially. My dad was was pretty chilled out, and but my mom was very very strict about it. She was a taskmaster when it came to all of these things, all of those points that I talked about. Whether it was you know integrity and respect, whether it was uh, education or anything else in that realm, they were very strict about it. And actually, you know, obviously, it in general bodes really well for for children who are were born with and learning the importance of that. But there are some some you know adverse effects also of that. And that was just you know some of the fears that are instilled if you if you don't kind of develop some of those. And it's you know that carrot and stick approach is is mm-hmm. got to be balanced well for it to. To have the ideal impact I think in my case they were very strict about it but as I grew up and and sort of started to think for my own self and stand on my own feet I just really really value and appreciate and cherish everything that they did at that stage so that we would have this as part of our fiber and I think my brother feels the same way but it was uh, yeah it was there was only one way <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you also talked about studying overseas when did you ever start thinking about studying abroad was it first sort of pitched to you by your family other relatives or was it something that people did in maybe your high school how did you think of studying abroad
0: Yeah that's a good question you know i think there's two uh, two things i would say to that i think the first is that the at least the perception and i think that was the reality was that the united states at an undergraduate level gave you the best co- best quality of education and so the aspiration was that if you're really good you need to end up there but i actually had different plans i i wanted to stay in india i did not want to leave and i did fairly well in my in my 12th grade exams and but i didn't get into a great school in india i got into a sort of mid tier school and i started attending college and uh, i just found it to be a, a, you know very challenging because most people would skip class and the attendance was not mandatory the examinations was just a hurdle that you crossed and the learning was not really there and at this point my brother who's older than me by only 18 months uh, had gone to the U.S. for his undergrad and so we had a parallel sort of analogy and then realized that I needed to change my own position and then decided okay I'll just uh, pick up my SAT books and and apply and and see if I can get into a better college in the U.S. which is how it ended up. Well,
1: oh, that's interesting. So you actually didn't want to study abroad and you were able to follow through with your plan as well, not studying abroad.
0: I was able to follow through my parents. My parents tried to kind of tell me that, you know, are you sure? And look at the because by the time you get to that age, it's you can't be too strict about it, right? You're talking to yeah. a 16, 17, <laughs> 18 year old. So they they tried to nudge me a lot, but I was also very clear and I was like, no, I don't want to leave and I I want to stay at home and I want to be with my family and I want to live in India. And Blah blah blah, and I want to play golf, and you know all that. And uh, then when I kind of tasted it myself, I just said that I don't think this is a fit for me. When I looked at the college that I got into, and so I picked up my books and uh, found my way into the University of Texas, and was also able to transfer some of my credits for that first year into the University of Texas. And uh, yeah, so ended up in a good place. And and obviously at that point, as I mentioned earlier, I also had the opportunity to go and play golf at purdue and joined their golf team which i did not pursue in the end
1: Oh, okay so when you were applying for u.s universities was university of texas your top choice how were you sort of basing your choices were you picking the ones at a golf team did you want to stay in a certain area
0: <laughs> no so uh, you know amanda that was actually the f- i had never left india at that time i was 18 years old i had traveled a little bit domestically but i'd never gone outside the country so I didn't have a real perspective of what part of the U.S. I wanted to live in. My entire perception of the U.S. was what I saw on TV and a little bit on the Internet at that time. But it came down to two. The University of Texas, I got into five or six schools, but uh, the University of Texas was the best, you know, ranked and academic school out of my list. And Purdue was the only one that gave me a golf scholarship to come and play for them. And the trade-off was really... Do I go to a better school that's ranked better and it's, yeah. you know, 25 colleges in the United States? Or should I go to a top 50 school instead, but get a chance to play on their golf team and have a path to a maybe a profession? And yeah, I went with the, the former, which was amazing. And it was a great experience. And And by the way, by that time, my brother had transferred into the University of Texas. He did his first year at another oh, college.
1: In the, the same US. one, University of Texas at Austin.
0: The yes. The same
1: so oh, he started great.
0: in he started in at Galesburg, Illinois, in a college called Knox College, and then he transferred into the University of Texas. And when I got into the University of Texas, it was like, "Hey, you're going abroad. You're the first time in leaving the country. Your older brother is there. Both of you can be together. It's a better academic school." And so the whole case was just stacked up <laughs> for that outcome. I think. I
1: see. And then since that was your first time leaving India, what was it like when you were heading to university?
0: Yeah, it was it was very overwhelming. You know, I think I had no idea of what to expect, you know, and uh, the University of Texas at that time was the largest undergraduate university by student body in the U.S. So it was 52,000 students, 42,000, 43,000 were undergrad. The campus was, you know, 775 or 780 buildings and, you know, each class was two, three hundred students. and so it was overwhelming. I, w- I would be walking on the streets and there would be a swarm of, a, you know, 100, 200, 300 students coming to me. I didn't know a single one. It was just so large. But fortunately, having my brother there and his friends and his networks and his experiences really gave me a soft landing, and induction uh, into living, into college life, into living in Texas. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, after a few semesters there, I I found my feet and found my own, you know, friend circle and, you know, coming from a, sort of middle-class family. Our parents had told us that, look, we'll pay your education and and your fees, which is a lot of money, you know, for, uh, for, for earning in India, but try to start working as soon as you can and support your own personal and living expenses. So pretty much after six or eight months, I started working, you know, $6, $8, $10 an hour in different roles to support myself and to be able to, uh, you know, go out for lunches and dinners on the weekends with my friends and and wherever i could really support my parents financially so again that that sort of middle class value-driven thinking was imbibed in us even and, and came forward at an undergraduate level where by year two both of us were paying our own living expenses entirely and just the tuition fee was covered by our family and uh, there was a very clear understanding that uh, once we graduated we were on our own like uh You know, we we, we couldn't, you know, go back and expect our parents to financially uh, continue to support us. So that uh, that was good, I think, at a young age to be just be able to be working by the hour, managing school, managing your time, managing your homework and examinations. But at the same time, having to earn money and support yourself was a very, very important, uh, you know, realization around the value of money and hard work at a young age
1: how many jobs would you be juggling at a time to be able to pay off your living expenses and extra pocket money
0: i had three jobs at peak and um, i mean if you care to know one was an usher at the at the stadium where i would literally you know usher people into their seats and make 6 7 dollars an hour and if i was lucky i was positioned in a good place and i could watch the game as well the second one was i delivered mail to across buildings on campus so i drove a university truck and And delivered mail. And the third one was I was a tutor in the athletics department. So I was actually quite fortunate. I got selected to be the only undergraduate tutor to teach undergraduate students. So, you know, I was a tutor in the women's athletics department. UT is like at the time was the number two sports college in the United States. And all these athletes have such intensive training and travel schedules that they tend to miss a lot of class. So the athletics department you know, facilitates tutors to come in and support them after hours in the, in their in their academic journey. And so I used to teach economics and mathematics to several of the women athletes at UT, UT Austin.
1: And I guess what was the biggest impact for you during that time you spent an undergrad in Texas? Like, was it something you experienced inside the university, outside, or was it more about your personal experience there?
0: I think uh, I would say two things. One is just I, I learned... Uh, the value of hard work and money because i had to do this jugglery between class and grades and you know work and and paying the bills and then i think the second one was just the the diversity of academic curriculum you know like coming from india going to school here you were you you, you chose just between you know commerce and science right at 10th grade and those were the two tracks and if you chose science, you typically went to engineering. And if you chose commerce, you typically went to business and, and finance or economics. And I think the the U.S. academic curriculum really allowed you a lot of freedom and flexibility to kind of stack up your entire credits for graduation. You know, you, of course, you need to specialize in certain fields and domains, but the baseline of credits or classes that you take, you know, anything from, you know, philosophy to psychology to art history to, you know, pretty pretty much anything under the hood, you had the ability to experiment with. And that was really liberating. And I never really thought I would get that kind of exposure. And some of those classes, actually, few cases or fewer assignments or anecdotes stay with me even today. So those were the two, I would say.
1: And how did you stay on top of everything, like having three jobs, academic work and everything else? would, Would you be falling sick on some days because you were overworked? How did you stay on top of it all?
0: I think um, I wasn't uh, falling sick. But I think what happened a little bit was that my grades got compromised. Because uh, you're running jobs, you have to, you know, you have scheduling, calendar management for all of that, you're earning money. And you know, once you start earning, you want to work as much as possible to make as much money as you can to cover your bills. And sometimes I would end up doing that at the cost of class and studying. And so there was a a period there where my grades dropped to lower than i would have wanted but i was able to pick that back up and and do it but it was tough i think it definitely taught you a little bit about time management at a young age and prioritization but uh, that uh, not everyone could do that right? not everyone had to do that right there were a lot of people who just got you know if you're, if you're from the US, your tuition fees was so much lower. And so yeah. you didn't really need to work. Or depending on how you financed your education from your family, or you took a loan, you might have a lot more financial flexibility. But I kind of wanted to do it all, right? I wanted to have friends and mm-hmm. have a social life. At the same time, I wanted to learn more about different subjects. And then I had to work hard to earn more money. And over time, I think I realized that jobs like being an usher or a cashier or delivering mail was just you know time and money but like uh, what was more gratifying for me was like the teaching job because I could see the impact I was having I could see a little bit of outcomes on the back of that and appreciation for my time so I kind of gravitated towards those and towards the end of it.
1: I saw that you interned at the Motorola as well was that something that people usually got to do like intern at a big company while you know study undergrad
0: sometimes I don't think it was standard or typical the way it is let's say today you know if you talk to college kids today they'll come out of college with three or four different internships yes. different streams and i don't think it was as standard back then but it wasn't completely non-standard and i kind of made an effort to do that because i was an international student studying in the university of texas i needed to get a full-time job that sponsored my visa and that immigration piece was an important consideration. And so I started networking as much as I could, did an internship at Motorola. It actually translated to a full-time role as well. But at that time, Motorola as a company was going through a big transition. They were going from Motorola to freescale semiconductor. And there was a lot of changes in the organization, as you would imagine. And so they did not sponsor my visa after I graduated and hence I had to leave. And yeah, and that was an important sort of inflection in my journey as well. But I at least got to work in American corporate culture for some time and get a flavor of that and in a large company and see what that what that looked like. You
1: said it was an important inflection
0: point. Why? So, you know, so the situation was that, you know, I graduated. I now don't have a job in the US that sponsors my visa. I've studied some interesting things. And the only place I could come back to was India right? Because that's, I'm an Indian, that's my passport. And I had to come home. But uh, the job opportunities in India, after just doing a a simple undergraduate degree in the US, wouldn't really put me on a on a meaningful career path at the time. And so I took a call. And it's a bit of a crazy call. I think I took a call to my family was going to to London for a holiday. And I just Mm -hmm. lined up a few interviews for myself in London. And I just crashed on a friend's couch. And it ended up being three months that I did that until I got a job and and I started working in London. And that was my first full-time job after undergrad. And, you know, my parents and family sort of thought I was crazy. And they were like, why is someone in London going to hire you? All you did is studied economics in the US and like, you have no work experience. You're not British. Yeah. What, you know, how is this going to work? And I just said, okay, give me three months, you know, I'm going to do this. And I convinced my friend to let me crash with him. And I just kept going from interview to interview and son- finally someone, you know, hired me.
1: <laughs> oh, actually, that's crazy. So it was a holiday. And then were you already lining up interviews before the holiday started? And was it already like a three-month plan at that point? Or like, how did, how did you structure it?
0: <laughs> it was a holiday. I decided that I would stay on longer. I had said okay. I would do three weeks to a month and, uh, you know, suss out the job market. But on the back, I was trying to hustle as many meetings or interviews as I could to see what it was like I, again I had never been to London I knew nothing about the job market but I had some friends and networks there so I just pushed those and one month became three months and I got a break and uh I and you know I kind of turned around and told my parents see I told you you know and uh <laughs> and and, and they're like fine we just gotta let this kid do what he wants to do because he doesn't listen to us anyway." Uh, but it sounds like he, he's gainfully employed. So let him do what he wants to. You know.
1: Yeah, at least his his visa is sponsored now. <laughs>
0: yeah, at least he's a legal immigrant in, yes. in, the, in the United Kingdom. Yeah.
1: Okay. And then another thing I was curious about was the job was actually, I think, a marketing job. Was that the plan or were you just open to any job? Or was that actually your top choice amongst the offers that you got?
0: Oh, no, no. I only got one offer and it was this one and uh, it was marketing and strategy. It sounded interesting. It was in telecom, which was a good industry to work in. But the company specifically, the company was called Flag Telecom, Mm -hmm. uh, which stands for fiber optic link around the globe. So this company owned 65,000 kilometers of ocean floor fiber, fiber optic cables. That was the infrastructure for communication. I knew nothing about this. I'm not an engineer. I did not know anything about telecom tower or telecom infrastructure or undersea cables. But I just kind of got a marketing and strategy job. I was doing pricing. I was doing marketing. I was working with different teams in the technical teams in the organization. I learned a little bit about the the technical side and the infrastructure side of the business. And I played an important supporting role to two different markets for Flag, North America and and then later on in India and, and Asia. And yeah, I think I did reasonably well for myself. I picked up the skills on the job. And this company, a few years later, got acquired by Reliance Communications in India. And then they moved me from London to, to India. And that became my first work experience in India.
1: And then, like, did you ever find out why they hired you? Or is that still a mystery until today?
0: I think initially... I came from a recommendation, so someone I knew was fairly senior at Flag. So they put my CV in the system, and there was a little bit of a nudge there in terms of, "Hey, look at this candidate. I think he has potential, and we're looking for ABC. Maybe this is a fit." But I think over time, I was able to demonstrate that I I could learn what the the you know what I needed to on the job, and also you know provide good support, and that came back to me from different feedback loops, and. Uh, yeah, and then and and then you know when they did this transition and the company moved headquarters from London to Mumbai, I they actually let go of a lot of people on the on the London side because the HQ was just shifting and the cost base moved yeah. to India, was lower. But because I was of Indian origin and I think I had mm-hmm. done a decent job, they wanted to retain me and they offered me a role in the in the business in India, and so I took that opportunity. You
1: talked about networks. A couple of times, were these networks you got from the university or from other, like, maybe some of the jobs you took? Uh,
0: no, the networks were a function of two things. One is the networks that I had from my school. So, you know, f- the friends that I stayed with uh, in London were their were school friends. And so there was that element. And then the second one was from the family. So just parents and cousins and their friends and their networks. Those were the two the two networks that I used or leveraged during that time of my life.
1: So when you were in university, were you always deliberate about building relationships or were you just like an outgoing person by nature? Was it a function of the different things you did?
0: I think at university, that's a really good question. Actually. I think at university, it was just a function of who I was and the personality I had. And, you know, just, I made a lot of friends and whether it was through the different jobs I did or the classes and, and somehow and this was a little atypical for an Indian student studying in the US. My group of friends was very, very international. We had like, you know, three Europeans, a couple of Americans, one or two South Americans, and then a few Indians. And and that was our kind of college group, which if you looked at a typical Indian student who was studying at the University of Texas, that was very atypical. I don't know how that happened, honestly. It just happened. And then that that became a little bit of a of a trend and fiber in my life because I ended up living and working in many different places. I ended up going to a very, very international business school later on in 2010. And even now, I, that that cultural and academic diversity is a very, very meaningful sort of pillar of, of everything I've done or continue to do.
1: And then after like your flag telecom role, I think you started moving slightly more into the investment side, slash BC side. How did that happen? Were you deliberate about it or was it just the next role that excited you?
0: no i was deliberate i think it happened it was a trigger of two things right the first one was that the company that bought uh, flag was reliance it was a very very different culture you know so from a very modern western telecom company which was again very diverse and eclectic i came to a really hardcore family run business in india where you were punching in and punching out and you were working six day weeks. And a lot of it was about posturing and FaceTime and all of that. And that was something that I didn't ascribe to very well. And the second thing that was happening was that the financial markets, this trend around private equity and investment banking and all of that was becoming very, very meaningful in India. And those were also the best paying jobs at the time. And so I wanted to kind of move my career a little bit into finance. I managed to get an analyst role for a company called Layton, which was investing. I would think of them more as a private equity investor, where they were investing in real estate and infrastructure projects and assets in India. They were an Australian company. So from a work culture perspective, I was a better fit, I think. And at the same time, in terms of the skill sets that I was going to pick up were definitely something I aspired to. And so I took that role and ended up in the same city, just getting a different job and and you know working in a different vertical uh, working in a different industry
1: and then after that you went to business school was it because you told yourself like oh if i go to business school i can keep like moving up in, in this like finance career path
0: i wish i was a little you know more uh, deliberate and and and, and as, far <laughs> as you as you describe but i actually didn't want to go to business school <laughs> oh. i after i did my undergrad i was like i don't want to study again i'm done and uh then I started working in finance in India. And when that happened, a lot of times, you know, I would be in meetings and conversations and you're talking to partners and this, that, and people would be like, hey, where's your MBA from? And I would be like, well, no, I, I don't have an MBA, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. So you are kind of like judged by this fact yeah. that... equity oh. <laughs> and you're, You don't have an MBA? Like, oh, okay. So then, you know, whatever, right? Like, uh, And I was like, that's odd. Like, why are people... You know, judging me, I was like, "Why don't you judge me for the work I do and 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 like, you know, what I bring to the table rather than the stamp." You know, and and actually, I don't know if you know this, Amanda, but basically in India, you see this now. It's changing a little bit, where you know guys like us will work for four, five, seven years between their undergrad and their masters and get real world experience. But you'll see a massive wave of people who graduate from school, go to college, graduate from college, go to MBA. Right then at 21, come out at 23, have two degrees under their belt and, you know, they start their career and may not have any actual real world experience. Right. And uh, so, you know, I didn't hold it in too much in very high stead, unfortunately. But when I saw this judgment from people I met in the industry and, you know, just to give you a sense like 2008 was the global financial crisis we mm-hmm. were in an, i was in an investing role we stopped investing for a year because the world came sort of tumbling down and a lot of the projects and initiatives that i was working on were halted or deferred and then i said okay you know let's go get the gmat books and uh, you know see if we can uh, crack that exam and get into a business school and then yeah i was very fortunate to uh, to get into uh, to a really great school and, and and that's how i first came to singapore in 2010 at INSEAN. What was it like going to Singapore for the first time? It was cool. I I it's it, it I had not uh, traveled much in uh, you know Asia outside India. I think by this time I had lived in North America. I had lived in the UK, and so I've traveled in those regions. I my job prior to NCAD required me to go to Dubai a lot, so I learned a little bit about the Middle East, but didn't know anything about Southeast Asia. I could see that you know I wanted to end up in this part of the world. And so, Singapore, INSEAD had a had two things that were really beneficial. One is it was a one-year program, and two is it had two campuses: one in Fontainebleau, just outside Paris, and one in Singapore. And I had the ability to do both those campuses over my one year. Singapore was amazing, you know, like uh, super structured, super organized, becoming this emerging hub in the region, very, very starting to become this cosmopolitan metropolitan city. And then Fontainebleau, obviously, we were just a bunch of MBA students living in the middle of a forest in France in a village. So that was obviously kind of poles apart in terms of uh, experience. And, and that's, I think, the beauty of that, that program or platform.
1: Well, having like, lived and worked in like Dubai, in London, in India, when you went to Singapore, because I've heard some people who told me this. Did you feel like, oh, this is the place I want to be working in in the future? Or did you not really have that kind of sentiment yet?
0: No. So let's break that in two parts, right? The first part is, did I did I feel like I wanted to be working here? I knew that I wanted to be in the region and be in Southeast Asia, India. I didn't have a specific thing about Bombay versus Singapore versus Hong Kong or any of that yet. And then, you know, the second one was just that I found Singapore to be a little bit, you know, kind of strict and, 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 and just like a very black and white in terms of how the system operates, how people operated. And there were good aspects to that. But sometimes coming from India, where it's the other end of the spectrum, it took a little bit of adjustment. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in Singapore long term. But professionally, I was very clear that I wanted to be in this part of the world because I, I just something in my gut told me that a big part of the future growth drivers would be these emerging economies. And, you know, I wanted to orient myself from an MBA in a school that had a significant presence in the region. And Given I had worked in, in this uh, already in, in the region, I was very clear that it had to be Asia. I didn't know what uh, where or, or how, but I just kind of followed my gut there.
1: So after your MBA, I noticed that you sort of went in between different roles in like finance and then as an operator. And you're also a co founder of two startups. Could you maybe share a little bit about how you went in between like so many different types of roles? Did you want to be an entrepreneur? Did you want to stay in finance? How did it happen?
0: It's a good question. Two things happened. One is on the personal side, I was in a very long-term relationship, which did not work out. And so, you know, that kind of allowed me to just reset all my assumptions of what I wanted to do professionally, because we were kind of on this path. And that path was get an MBA, go back and work in finance. I had an offer to work for a private equity firm that I interned at while I was at business school. And then the second thing is I was very interested in entrepreneurship. I've always been a little entrepreneurial on my own. So I started taking all these entrepreneurship electives at INSEAD and I met a guy who we started working on a business idea and we fleshed that idea out over the last two, three months at business school. And when the time came around, we decided to take the plunge, reject our job offers and start a business. So I actually didn't fluctuate between a lot of roles. I just over the last, you know, 13 years since I graduated from business school, I've just operated in this tech and startup industry either as a founder or as an investor. And the first innings was as a founder. I started a company. We we won the NCAD Business Venture Competition and got a little bit of a little bit of money to to get off the blocks. And then we really really leveraged the NCAD networks, colleagues from business school, professors, and other extended networks of NCAD to to raise some seed money and start a company and start building a product and start taking it to market. So at that time 2010 entrepreneurship and startups were not as cool and sexy as they are today and so it was definitely the path that was very very uh, less traveled and from our batch of 500 mbas 501 mbas in my batch three companies were founded so there were three groups of guys or girls that went out and became founders or entrepreneurs and everyone else went to you know consulting and banking and large corporate and so on but that was a big inflection as well because I went from, you know, being working in corporate in a role, which is kind of just a narrow defined uh, role and perspective of the world to, you know, kind of just thinking about what the possibilities too could be in terms of starting a business and growing a business and raising capital around it and so on and so forth. So that was a big, big turning point. And as I mentioned earlier, there was a personal element that played a factor in that.
1: And then like, I think you ran the business for about two years. How did it end? Like the first venture you built?
0: not well. We we raised seed money. We built a, a team of people. We built the software product. We started getting some traction and momentum in Singapore. This was a product that it was a software that we integrated on point of sale systems in retail shops. And the, plat- the, the software let you issue receipts electronically. Uh, it helped you do electronic loyalty programs. And it gave you a bunch of data and analytics and insights on the business if you were a merchant. So there was definitely value. But what I think the key learning was was that Singapore was a very, very high value market. And so people here were interested in learning about what we were building. And this was pretty high tech. And there was a meaningful social impact in terms of saving of paper, et cetera. But it was nice to have and not a must have. And our learning was that in a market like singapore which is nice to have when we went to markets that were less evolved whether it was southeast asia or india it was not even maybe nice to have you know and so we you know we had to return some capital to our investors we gave the software to you know our customer first customer and then decided to wind it down and and move on and we We were able to salvage some value there for our investors, but it was definitely not a good financial outcome. It was a a tough phase in terms of going through that big buildup to come down. And I think it took me a little bit of time personally to also just, you know, get back on my feet and start thinking about really what was next. And, but yeah, but I think what became very clear was I wanted to work in the same industry. I wasn't sure if I was ready to start a business again, but I definitely wanted to work in this tech and and startup space and and that's when India happened and I saw a big opportunity there and decided to move back.
1: How did you know when it was time to shut it down and like how to properly you know shut everything down like how do you return value back? who do you sell what to like how did you navigate that part as well?
0: How did we uh, let me try to break that up how do we know when it was time to shut it down? We lost our c t o and uh, you know he moved on and that led to some differences of opinion and perspective for the folks that were left and uh, we couldn't underwrite a real path to building an engineering team in singapore and being able to scale it and and weren't sure if we could do that in india and so that was one meaningful signal for us the second one as i was mentioning on the product side is that it was nice to have and not a must have and i think when we took a step back and really tried to be a little bit more self-aware around what was going on. we we realized that we would have to make a big change to the product or the strategy for this to continue, right? And then you know in terms of the shutdown and wind down process, you know we had an investor of ours uh, his name was Patrick Turner. he was one of the head he was one of the heads of entrepreneurship at NCId, but this guy was really like a godfather and not an investor. and when we when we went to him and told him, that uh, we don't think it's working. And he just, you know, gave us even more support, guidance, mentorship, uh, you know, emotionally, financially, and just continued to just do everything he could to help us through that phase. So we learned a lot from that. And and this big fear of going back to your professor and your investor to say it's not yeah. working and it's, you know, we've decided to kind of move on and this and that. The way he d- managed that for us, like was a lifelong learning. Like I, I'll never forget this. I'll t- I'll tell you the quick story. It was at Fusionopolis in Singapore at Harry's bar. We met him. And when we broke this news to him, he called the bartender and he ordered a round of shots for us. And he said, here you go. We're going to cheers to your first failed startup. And the first, the first pinstripe on your shoulder and promise me that the next time any of you start a company, you're going to call me because I'm going to invest in you again. And we were like, what? That's what you're going to say yeah. to us. We're gonna Tell you that, uh, that we've, we've lost part of your money and it's not working. and, you know, it was incredible. So we had we had one or two of these guardian angels, you know, that really helped us carry us through that process. So I'm really very, very, you know, fortunate for that.
1: It made you feel like you check something off a box, you achieve something instead of like, you know, what it probably felt on your end. It's like, oh my god, I did something wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you usually full of all these emotions, and you know, there's there's guilt, and there's there's this financial element, and there's this you know, social element and so many different things. And I just didn't know uh, how to kind of deal with all of those. But, you know, we had one or two folks like Patrick who just just kept it so simple and made it look so easy and, and just gave us these lifelong lessons as a result. So it was, uh, it was incredible.
1: Was he also like your first check into the company or one of the first? He was. He was the first check. And then he did end up starting another company again. Did he invest the second time
0: around? He did not. Unfortunately, uh he he got very sick over the few years after and and then he 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 passed away uh, before he got an opportunity to uh invest again in me. But uh I definitely kept in touch with him uh while he was around and uh he's just uh you know had a, you know, had such a meaningful impact on a lot of us and I can say that not only for me and my partner but just for so many other NCRs who went through the entrepreneurship curriculum and some of them that started companies and he backed many of them and he was just an amazing guy.
1: He does sound amazing. I'm sure he would have invested if he was still around.
0: I think he would have.
1: I'm curious about the second company that you ran. You said that this was a bit more closer to your interest as a kid and this one I think is still around today if I'm not wrong.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I'll tell you the quick bridge between the two. Yes. <laughs> I ended up Having an opportunity to work for a VC in Singapore, by the way, at that time after my startup didn't work. and uh, I decided not to take that opportunity. And the underlying assumption there was that before I became an investor, I wanted to kind of get the operating side of things, learn it more deeply and and try to get it right. And so I didn't take the the VC opportunity. I moved back to India. I had an operating role in a growth stage startup as a business head, did well for myself there. and also, had this passion and interest in investing in early stage and all of that and so became part of the founding team of one of the first accelerators in india it's called gsf india oh, wow. and that that platform has had about 100, 120 companies go through it in the last 12 years and the first two years i was part of the founding team and we did three batches of companies 34 companies we invested in the idea was to take a y combinator or a tech stars type of approach and build a accelerator plus fund and that was the dream and uh, that didn't work out either in the sense that we couldn't raise the fund but we were able to hustle the money together and keep the business going and we invested in three rounds of companies and when we saw that you know for us to have a meaningful you know cash flow for ourselves etc we needed to raise the fund and because we were not able to we decided to pursue different things and that's when i became the founder co-founder of the online auto startup in 2014 Uh, yeah and that was the that was the next big entrepreneurial innings where i I, you know we literally from a few of us to you know what was i think 350 people when i left the business in 2020 was was probably three four mbas in one in those five six years
1: Could you give us a little snapshot of your experience there? I mean, it's like practically a five year journey. Could you maybe share a little bit about what your most memorable moment was at the time?
0: One most memorable moment. I think one most memorable moment. Can I give you two or three?
1: Yeah, two or three should be fine. We have okay. enough time.
0: <laughs> I think during that era, India went through two big systemic shifts. One is They demonetized the currency and we were building a used vehicle marketplace. So buying and selling of used vehicles, two wheelers, four wheelers, from dealers to consumers. A lot of these transactions, a big part of these transactions happened in cash. They demonetized the currency to clean up the entire system. There's many theories for why they did it. We don't need to go into that. But that was a systemic shift for the overall used car market in India. So that was one pivotal Point and and inflection where we had to kind of change so many aspects of the business because of that. The second one was India introduced GST for the first time and and that had a big impact again on this industry, which is largely dominated by mom and pop sellers who are not really paying much tax and really really unorganized and low low usage of technology. And I think the third one which is a which is a highlight and something I'm very proud of is that we got Toyota, to Toyota's trading arm to invest in us, and I think as oh, wow. leaders who were, you know, building a startup in a particular industry, you know, just just you know, getting at that time the world's largest automobile brand and platform to finance us and invest in us was a just a massive validation. It took us one year to get that done, but uh, it was definitely worth it, and was something that we we were still very proud of.
1: And could you share also how you got to Jungle after that? Like, how did you even get the role as a venture partner?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I met uh, you know founding partner of Jungle in 2011 in Singapore. He was setting up Fund One. One of my angel investors in my startup at the time was associated with Jungle. And he had connected us to Amit. And we had some really good conversations with Amit. And by the way, Amit had told me at that time that you know, this business is not going to work. And here's why. And he was really amazing about it in terms of how he kind of explained his perspective, as well as the empathy that he brought. And I just from the first interaction had very, very high regard for him. And so we kept in touch over the years when we did the accelerator in India, I would invite him to come and speak and meet some of the startups that we were investing in. And every time i would go to singapore we would have a coffee and Room, the auto company was a singapore headquartered company so we would often come to singapore for fundraising or board meetings and then uh, when i was figuring out what to do next uh he you know we had a chat we had a few conversations and he said that listen i want to do you've done a lot of early stage investing and you've been an operator as well and we want to build something more structured and institutional at at seed level as jungle and you know why don't you come on board as a venture partner for one year and and uh, let's try to figure out if this is a much longer you know 10 year partnership uh, and we can do something meaningful and make an impact at that uh, very very early stage or seed stage and that's how it started
1: so you knew amit even before you co-founded the startup so this was during the the accelerator days or even before
0: i knew him when i after INSEAD in singapore when i was start oh. when i was running my own company he was setting up jungle ventures first vehicle and uh, mm-hmm. so obviously he was meeting different entrepreneurs and you know you know looking at what companies were out in the market and we were thinking of raising a next financing round and that's how we got introduced to him and started talking to him about the business and then just you know became friends over time
1: and then what made you say yes to the role and join
0: well um <laughs> i think honestly it was like, loose and unstructured and a bit vague and sort of felt right up my alley, like in the sense that he said, let's give it a year, come on board as a venture partner, let's do these three, four things. And but here's the outcome that we should work towards, right? And let's craft that path together. And that sounded exciting to me. You know, I I thought, uh, I always had a lot of respect for him. And obviously, by that time, 2020, Jungle as a franchise had become you know, much larger and much more meaningful and very well respected in the ecosystem. And I had an opportunity to potentially, you know, build a new strategy or a new pillar for the business. And and, and that was, uh, you know, open-ended enough and yet entrepreneurial enough that got me excited to say, okay, let's do this. You know, best case, we we find a way to work together for the next 10 years. And, and worst case, uh, you know, we'll spend a year together and always be friends, you know.
1: And could you also share, like, what your first investment ever was? I don't know if this was a jungler earlier, but the first one that you sourced up until invested in. One of
0: my first, uh, my first investment was in 2012. It was in a a company that ref sold refurbished electronics, specifically mobile phones. So what they would do was they would go to manufacturers of mobile phones. So let's say a Samsung, right? And go to them and say, hey, these are all your returns. These are returns for various reasons. We'll buy all of them for you. And we'll build this platform that just sells returned and refurbished electronics items online to customers. And uh, that was the first, you know, in the accelerator, that was the first investment that we had committed to. And all of us got a little bit of equity in these companies and got an opportunity to put a little bit of money ourselves as well. And so that's the first one that I can remember. By the way, that the founder of that, there were two founders of that company. Uh, One was Indian and one was half English, half French. They're both very good friends. One of them, you know, in that four, five year era when I was doing a lot of angel investing in India, he did a lot of angel investments with me. And uh, his business went up and did well for a few years and then ultimately, you know, didn't work out as we all wanted. But we continue to be very, very, very good friends.
1: And then the next thing I want to ask you is, after a couple of years of jungle, you did end up becoming a partner last year. And that was the same time you guys launched First Check. Was it so that you could focus on the first check program?
0: Yes. So if we continue from what I was telling you in terms of my conversations with Amit around joining as a venture partner and figuring out what we wanted to do at early stage, when we sort of looked at the early stage ecosystem and looked at, you know, how VCs were playing in that space uh, in the region, what we realized is sort of two, three things. One is that most large funds were using investing at that stage more as a top of the funnel and, and sort of deal flow generation type of approach is that, you know, spray a little bit of money at very early stages, see what's working, and then, you know, double down on on what might work. The second thing was that everyone sort of was taking a, a batch or a cohort or a sort of classroom-based approach to company building and and when I spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs, they didn't see too much value in that one-size-fits-all type of mindset. And the third one was that you know, having been an operator, and and a lot of the folks at Jungle have also been operators, and you know, the willingness to sort of roll up your sleeves and and get into the deep end of the pool and really work closely with founders through some of those key inflection points was really what founders really were looking for, and what I was able to do a little bit as an angel. While I was an entrepreneur myself, for a lot of companies that I angel invested in, and so that led to the evolution into what we call first check. First check is first check in a in a company we partner with with founders as early as idea or pre seed and seed stages, and uh, we give them meaningful first check, one to three million dollars on on very good terms, and uh, get pretty actively involved in helping them through the early stages of foundation and company building, and. And uh, we we announced it last year in in October, but uh, we've sort of had this mindset for a couple of years, and uh, that's when you know after a year year or a little bit more, maybe a year and a half of being at jungle, I moved over to Singapore, which is where where jungles headquartered, and and then we started thinking about launch and communication and brand and name and team and strategy and all of that. I
1: think like one of the questions I had was like, is this like an alternative to joining let's say an accelerator or founder program would you say that
0: it could be i think let me tell you a little bit more in terms of the kinds of founders that we want to work with because it's an as early as an idea stage partnership we like to work with you know domain folks so people who've worked 15 20 years 10 15 years in the domain have a very you know insider view and perspective of the problem statements Mm -hmm. and what solutions might be and you know if they started these businesses would really hit the ground running in terms of execution or second time founders right people who've been through that cycle themselves so like myself if I were to start a business and and I had an idea and I came to jungle and said hey I'm looking for a couple of million dollars and here's what I want to do and if it was in an industry I've worked in before or at least I've built a few companies so understand some of those motions those are the types of founders we we work with so it's a very it's a very high conviction bet and a very focused strategy so we'll do a few investments a year not 15 20 but i would say mm-hmm. single digit but all of those partnerships is something we would really get behind not only in terms of capital but also in terms of networks and time from the partners at jungle and and just you know helping them go through the zero to one motions and, and the path to finding clear product market fit in, in a short period of time.
1: Got it. Because, like, this offering is tailored for people who have many years of experience under their belt. They need a different type of support than what maybe an accelerator or a founder Correct. program would typically give, because it's just right. more one on one, I think, as you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then for this one, like there is no curriculum, nothing like that. It's more one-on-one tailored support, focused time with the founder.
0: Yeah, there's no curriculum. What we have is is we have what we call venture builders. We have three venture builders. They're listed on the Jungle First Check website. Mm -hmm. These are folks who have been founders before. Our our founders currently have done the zero to one and one to ten, have raised the capital, have pivoted their businesses, have built teams. And you know understand some of the the pains and the joys of building a business in this part of the world so we leverage these folks to help us a get access to more more such domain operators and seasoned founders and also to come in and help manage these companies sometimes sit on the board on our behalf or or at least invest with us and and be meaningful and helpful to the company so it's there's no curriculum there's no program uh, there's no batch you know it's just a it's a one to one deal-by-deal partnership and uh, hopefully many of these will be from idea or precede to to hopefully IPO level partnerships that's that's the whole
1: do you plan to also do like follow-on investments on subsequent rounds is that like something that is required like will you invest in every succeeding round or is it just um, you have the option to invest in follow-on rounds
0: no so i think the uh, it's a really great question amanda i think the and it's a big differentiator as well from what we see in the market is that in almost all the investments that we'll do at pre-seed, we will uh, lead or co-lead the first few rounds in the business and then participate in almost all of them. If you take examples of companies like you know Moglix or Credivo, these were you know uh, seed level partnerships for Jungle where we led or co-led the first two, three rounds in the business and then participated in almost every round till date. And so that's what we envisage this to be. To give you some perspective, we've done about six investments behind the strategy in the last couple of years. And uh, in three, now, you know, hopefully going on four, we've already deployed, you know, seven to ten million dollars and led or co-led the Series A for those companies within a short period of time. So it's definitely the idea is to put it to be a very, very deep capital partnership. We're deploying meaningful capital all the way from idea or to, to you know, every round in the business.
1: Would you say First Check is sort of a product of what you were working on or what you joined Jungle to do without, you know, knowing it at the time?
0: Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, as they say, the dots always connect at some point and it's unclear until it's clear. And I think that, you know, for me, First Check is the type of partnership I would want from a seed investor. You know, and and then that's the DNA of jungle as well in terms of just being very high conviction and very focused, and so it, it it absolutely is that, and and I think it's a product for me in so many different ways. Right, one in terms of the role I've tried to play for some of the founders that I've angel invested in. Two is the type of there were few investors that we had, you know, that were operators that were just just moved the needle so much for us in our journey of building that auto business, and also the DNA of of the folks at jungle so i think it was this kind of you know perfect storm of 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 things that just strung together and just made a lot of sense and we really hope that the founders that we're backing you know feel the same way and 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 uh, we can continue to to do this uh, and have a very very meaningful impact over time
1: how many angel investments have you done is it like i don't know 30 plus 40 plus yeah outside say- of your role
0: yeah, I, so I don't do angel investments anymore since I've been at oh, Jungle okay. uh, because we, you know, we're we're this is uh, I we invest at the early stage at Jungle, so it's only Jungle Capital that, that I invest now. But I think prior to Jungle, I would say I got to if you take the investments from the accelerator as well as my personal ones, I would say it got to maybe fifty fifty five. But if you take out the accelerator part because those were smaller and part of a particular structure, then I would say about uh, twenty twenty five yeah
1: did you like start investing like, angel investing with a thesis how did you develop your own thesis in angel investing at the beginning
0: i think uh i started with just gut and then just sort of started learning along the way and developing thesis around what i was practically seeing in the market
1: mm-hmm.
0: i think uh you know early stage a lot of it is just around being able to evaluate founders well and and really, uh, you know, see if they have the right skills and the, and, and the market is at the right time to be able to capitalize on the opportunity. But I started just with gut feel and just tried, sort of just learned a bunch along the way. And as I became a founder the second time and raised capital and scaled that, and then, you know, those things got much sharper in terms of how we looked at looked at businesses and how we looked at business models and margins and cash flows and, you know, all of that. So we definitely refined a hell of a lot, but the starting point was just a gut feel. Like I, I don't think I knew much uh, <laughs> much more.
1: When did you like get the feeling that um you could tell yourself, like, hey, I think I'm a better investor now? Like, was there any inflection point? Or do you think that you won't know until like 10 years or 20 years or until the fund matures enough? Or I don't know how it works with angel investing, because it's not like a fund. <laughs>
0: I think what's an interesting exercise that I did a few times over the years was to just put down on paper what my thesis or reasons for investing in something or not investing in something was. And I think when you see those get validated and invalidated, when they get validated, you get a little bit more confidence, right? And I I think that does not happen overnight. It takes years to do that. I don't think it's 10 years, but I think you start seeing meaningful signals which are validating and invalidating your assumptions you know, almost quarterly, right? Like may not be weekly or monthly, but on a quarterly basis, you can start seeing some of those patterns coming into place and some of those assumptions being validated or not. But yeah, you know, and then there are so many external factors that affect this. It's capital, it's how well you can work together as a team, it's competition, it's market forces. So I wouldn't give, I wouldn't ascribe all the credit to the investor or the person who had some of those assumptions because it's, there's so many other factors to it
1: got it and stepping outside of work a little bit these days if you're not working you're not at work what can we find you doing playing golf and
0: <laughs> it's not as much playing golf anymore i i try to play a few times a month but it's uh, hard i have two little daughters one is two and a half and one is six months old so I try to spend um you know as much time on the weekends with them and uh, my wife is a founder herself and She runs a business in India, and so we both travel a fair amount. And I think uh, a little bit of sport, a little bit of exercise, some family time, and yeah, just you know, whatever time I can get to read uh, or travel personally is is always uh, welcome. You know,
1: what is it like to have a dynamic where you're an investor and your wife is a founder?
0: (laughs) It's very interesting. She she's she's three years into her business and she's trying to decide if she should raise money or not. And, um, you know, her, her friends and people that she meet tell her that, Oh, you know, your husband's an investor, you can raise money. Like, what are you, what's your problem? You know? And, and then she sees, she's seen the journey with me as a founder, raising money, working with investors. And now as an investor working with other founders, and she's just trying to figure out, is this for her or not? And, And I think she goes back and forth, so it's a very interesting dynamic because you can only imagine the dinner table conversations. uh, But uh, (laughs) I think she's in uh, this year. I think will be the year for her to discover whether she really wants to go down this path of raising capital and sort of, you know, getting onto that bandwagon, or just kind of organically building the business up the way she has thus far.
1: how exciting! I think both ways are both the bandwagon now because there is a growing amount of people who only want to do the non-vc route now (laughs) yeah i mean
0: look the vc route is 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 one path one path that can be very lucrative and very exciting and can have very large meaningful impact to building a business but it's not the only path i think we've seen many companies that have taken different approaches and grow slower and grow organically and and not uh, necessarily bring in external capital or external stakeholders into the company. And it's a factor. It's about fitment. You know, it's not, there's no right or wrong, I think. And that's what I try to tell her. And I think she's uh, she's in that discovery phase. So we'll see where she lands on this one.
1: Yeah. So exciting. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one question I asked all my guests. And that is, outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? This can be achieved in one year, one month, five years, or even 30 years.
0: I think there's a there's a saying. uh, I was reading this book. Actually, it was a podcast by Naval Ravikant that said uh, something like a love full of a home full of love, a healthy mind and a fit body is never given to you. It can only be earned. And I think the takeaways from from that podcast and what he talked about and how to strike some of those balances and What the importance of life outside of work is and what impact it actually has on your professional life is so important, which I think in your early years of your career, you don't really realize that. And so for me, it's just about that that juggernaut, you know, can I get some time to myself to stay fit and healthy? Can I spend enough time with my daughters and my wife and can I achieve everything I want to professionally? You know, that that is, uh, is, is something I think I'll spend my whole life trying to find the right balance between
1: well, we'll check in on you after a couple of years.
0: <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Look forward to that.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Shav. It's really in- like I really enjoyed chatting with you and I'm sure everyone will enjoy listening to this.
0: I hope so. Thank you so much for your time. And I enjoyed the conversation as well and look forward to the opportunity to meeting you in person at some point.